Alright, are you ready, Brendan? I'm ready, Sean. Alright, let's do this. again and again i'm brendan i'm sean and today we are diving back into the nolan verse to go back over one of our shared top 10 movies this one is inception we have this in different spots in our top 10 but it's certainly a shared shared favorite of ours sean you have this all the way up at your number two number two lord of the rings yep Mine is, I will say this right off the bat, it's too low at seven. I'm definitely going to have to move it up. I think, honestly, the only reason I put it as low as I did was to try and like have some space between all the Nolan movies in my top five. In fact, it, it comes in as the lowest ranked for me out of the Nolan films in my top five, but I don't think that's going to last. Watching this again, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be able to keep it any lower than probably five in reevaluating. Needless to say, we both are massive fans of this movie. Came out July 16th, 2010, which is just kind of crazy to think about. Like, that's that was a long time ago. <laughs> not only was it written by, or sorry, not only was it directed by, but it was also written by Christopher Nolan. Uh, and all by himself this time, you know, a lot of times he collaborates with his brother Jonathan on scripts, and this time he is he is the sole writer for this movie. So why don't you start by taking us through your experience, first time seeing Inception. Yeah, so first of all, it always surprises me when I look at the timeline of Nolan's films, looking at this one, I'm like, I, I always forget that it came out after Batman Begins and Dark Knight. Hmm. Like whenever I look at the release date, I'm always like, I always feel like this one is the one that like started my fanhood in a way, okay. but it's always been, you know, cemented as a, a favorite of mine of his movies, even though he did other great films, this one has always just kind of remained there despite what else has come out. So despite Interstellar, despite the Dark Knight trilogy, this one has always, for some reason, just been lingered at the top there and never really moved in its place. And yeah, after watching it this time, I... I'm not surprised by that fact anymore. Like, I think, I think it'll continue to be there. This will be similar to Lord of the Rings. Like nothing, I, I don't think anything's really going to knock it out of number two for me. It would take, it would take a pretty great film of his, maybe not his, but I'm not going to just always say Nolan's going to (laughs) be the greatest of all time, but it would be hard to knock this one out of number two. So, so yeah, so thinking through like back, it was it was hard for me to kind of think back to like seeing this, obviously, because you said 2010 is so long ago, which is really weird to say. You know, that's the year that we, that's the year we graduated college. Yep. And so we're not that old. We always try to not play that up too much. We're not old at all. Right, right. We're still young at heart. But anyway, this was uh, not long after I had started dating my now wife. We started dating in the spring of 2010, and so, you know, when you're dating somebody, when you're getting to know somebody, you're kind of getting a feel of what movies they like and what their taste is in films, like how deep are they willing to go, how much will they entertain the films that you want to see, and so this was a test for her, and and I, I remember 
I was immediately, you know, hooked from the time that I saw the trailers. Obviously, I knew it was Christopher Nolan. I know what he'd done with with Prestige and what he'd done with the Dark Knight films. I'd seen my memento by that point, and so yeah, I would pretty much say I was a follower of whatever he was going to release because I was just intrigued by his style, you know, and I would say I was already a fan. So immediately knowing that this was his and then seeing just the different visual concepts from the trailer that, you know, you have no context for where they're at in the film, but you're just intrigued by what you see, whether it's like the the scene where the dream is collapsing when they're in Saito's dream for the first time and you see the water gushing in from the sides or, um, you know, the train going through the streets of LA. You don't know any of, at that point, like where that comes in the film, but you're just immediately like seeing this as a large scale film. So yeah, it was very intrigued so we went to see this i think it was yeah i think it was opening weekend of the film man so yeah i took my wife it ended up being some kind of like i don't know how it ended up being a double date with my parents but it did and so yeah i i don't know whose suggestion it was to see it most likely mine we got to the theater i'm just like on the edge of my seat just ready for this thing to start but also constantly wondering like what's my wife gonna think of this whole girl girlfriend at the time like is she gonna be like yeah it was way over my head or what you know I didn't really like it at all, but she ended up loving it, like absolutely loving it. And it's, it's in her top 10 as well. Like we've talked about her top 10 and while there are other films that you would consider just like typical romance films in there, this is one of those that like breaks the mold of those and is always going to be in her top 10, which I absolutely love. And, but yeah, I remember my dad fell asleep during this one, which is mind boggling to me, but he does that during movies. And my mom came out thinking, I was like, well, that was all right. Just all right. Like I was, I was ready to jump back in the theater and watch it again as soon as it was over. So, this this was like an immediate top ten. I feel like this one. I don't think I had a top ten back then, but yeah. So, how about for you? Like, what was it like anticipating this one or seeing this for the first time? Yeah. So very very different from your your experience. Just in the fact that I I did not look at this movie as a must see when I first saw the trailers. I was intrigued, but, you know, as you said, the trailers didn't really show a whole lot of, like, what is this movie actually about? Of course, it was being marketed heavily as, you know, from the director of The Dark Knight, going off of the massive success that The Dark Knight had in 2008. You know, this was his follow-up. I think, you know, obviously before The Dark Knight Rises, and, and I didn't even know if The Dark Knight Rises had been, like, announced yet that that was happening, probably, but... So it was not one that I was like, oh, I have to go see this in the theater. You know, this is actually this was probably the last Nolan movie that was that way for me that like before I truly understood, like, okay, this guy is like is awesome. I love him. I got to see every single movie he puts out, you know, especially because most of my my love for his movies was not just that like, oh, it's Nolan, but it's Batman. I was a huge Batman fan. So, like, of course I was going to go see Batman Begins in the Dark Knight, regardless of who was directing them. So he wasn't he wasn't that guy for me yet, but this this would be the end of that. I remember I was in I was in Nashville, Tennessee, with a couple guys from the, the church that I was interning at. Um, you know, of course, obviously, again, it was July of 2010, and we... I think we went down on a Friday night. We really didn't have anything to do until Saturday. And so we, we just kind of had a free night. And one of the other guys suggested we go see Inception. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. And so, and of, of course, like seeing the movie, I can still remember just kind of that feeling when, when it cuts to black at the end, the top, you know, 
spinning, but is it is it teetering? Is it not? Is it going to fall over and just kind of you know being just sitting there like in awe of of what I just watched? Yeah, I, I think different from your experience, but the end result was the same. That like this is immediately like one of my favorite movies. I can't wait to see it again. I honestly don't remember if I ever went back and saw it a second time in the theater. I don't remember the first time like I watched it with my wife. You know, because again, like she wasn't there like the first time I saw it. But I have definitely watched it several times since then, and and obviously consider it one of one of the best movies ever. Oh yeah, I you were just talking about about like how like the trailer doesn't really tell you much. You know, it doesn't really even explain like what it's about. And I remember reading like back in the early stages of when it was announced, and even when they were like pitching the movie, this would have been like on IMD message boards or something. But it was really just only known as you know, like new Christopher Nolan film that takes place within the architecture of the mind is kind of the phrase that was tossed around with it. And I was just like, I don't know, that just started automatically sounds like I got to see it. Yeah. Like what, you know, what does that mean? Right. And, and then after you see it, you know, and I was listening to a, just a sound clip of an interview with DiCaprio during like the film's promotion and stuff. And they were kind of asking him like, why did you sign on to this? And he, you know, everything that he says is just so like, it's just so vague. You know, I was like, I was just really, truly intrigued by what Nolan was doing just on this idea of just like layering things. And so like, even then, like even the actors aren't really giving anything away. So like pretty much everything leading up to the release of the movie was all just intrigue. And like, yeah, I, I can't help but like want to see it because I have no idea what to expect. And I don't even, yeah, I don't even know if anywhere during the promotions and stuff, if they talked about dreams, they might have. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, of course, you know, Christopher Nolan is, is notoriously secretive like he doesn't give you a script if he wants you to read for a part he invites you to his house and then you get to read the script but you don't get to take it with you you know you have to you have to read right. it. like so it, it makes sense that like dicaprio would be so secretive in the interview and stuff but yeah i i don't remember i, I feel like we talked about this a little bit with interstellar too it, it was there was just kind of some vague information about out there about it but you really don't know what it's about and like and that's the way it should be like right you know you got to go see the movie you don't want a trailer that's three minutes long that shows you every important part of the plot that may be up to the, the ending like i want to be surprised i want to i want to go into a movie knowing little as possible and like truly be surprised and like feel like i'm like really going along for the ride and not where i'm anticipating oh i remember this from the trailer and then sometimes they put things in the trailer that don't even end up in the final cut of the movie so you're like Right. You're waiting for a certain line or scene and then like it doesn't even happen, which is always, you know, kind of frustrating. But yeah, that's not not the case. No. One thing talking about Nolan being secretive, one thing that he's definitely not secretive about is who he likes to work with. Yeah. And so we I mean, we know full well that he's definitely got a love for teaming up with Hans Zimmer for a yeah. lot of his scores. I I mean, I don't know this well enough to know his first film was Zimmer if it was in fact batman begins but and it wasn't prestige i know that but i would have to look back at like following and or not following but memento to see if it was one of those but this is obviously you know you got hints of zimmer being unique within the dark knight films but this one i remember like being truly highlighted as like they they almost like pushed him to the front runner status of like score for like all the awards when mm -hmm. this one came out like they were highlighting like the time 
song for all of this, you know, and like releasing it as a single. And it was just like, there was a lot of anticipation for this song as well. And I think they even released the song prior to the film being released. And it was almost like a tease as to kind of like, all right, here's a further hint as to like what's being played with here. Hmm. You know, we've told you architecture of the mind and now like the song here is called time and that's all we're going to give you. Yeah. But I remember, yeah, I snatched that up on iTunes as soon as it was released just to like <laughs> listen to it. And I, you know, I love the, obviously like coming to see after watching the film, you love the place that it has in the film and the different times that that motif is used throughout the film. And obviously we're going to talk about that, but. Oh yeah. So yeah. So working with Hans Zimmer, working with, you know, I'm sure other pl- plenty of crew members, but the ones that come to mind the most are Zimmer, Wally Pfister, his cinematographer, who he's worked with a lot. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll see what happens in this year's Oscars. But it's always interesting to me when a film gets a Best Picture nomination, but then the director doesn't get nominated. I remember this happened with Argo. Argo right. ended up winning Best Picture. Ben Affleck didn't even get nominated for Best Director. And in this case, right. you know, Inception was nominated, did not win Best Picture but Nolan didn't even get a best director nod. Uh, that always just kind of seems a little silly to me. How can it be best picture, but the director wasn't one of the best directors of the year too. Um, right. I, I feel like that was like the Academy still kind of like growing out of their bias. Cause they tend to like have obviously like a drama bias, you know, and they, they had to expand because of films like the dark Knight, like not getting nominated. And they're like, well, we don't really do superhero films, but it's right. like, okay, but people are starting to do different things with films now. And drama has kind of not stepped to the side a little bit, but it's allowed room for other things to happen in film. So like sci-fis are kind of becoming more dramatic or drama filled and worthy of awards attention, you know? And so I feel like with this one, they're like, I don't know, we tend to go director to kind of like someone who's done more of a drama type of film and there's too much sci-fi in this one. Yeah. Um, but I feel like they've grown a lot since then and in, in what they allow in. But yeah, it really just seems like if you're going to do, like you said, the best picture, like, what what is a film without the guy at the helm you know i know they give best picture awards typically to like the producers of the film and the executive producers when they get on stage at the end there and it's like great i know you guys did a lot i know you had a lot to do with the financing and all the you know getting this film off the ground and all that stuff and thank you but i feel like if you're going to give the best picture trophy to somebody at the award show like you should have also a, a trophy going to the director too mm-hmm. because it wouldn't be anything especially in a film like this where the director is also the writer. Right. Yeah. And you know that, I mean, Nolan is a director. And, I mean, it, I, I, his reputation obviously back then was not still not what it is now because it's, you know, just got so much more body of work and has worked with so many more actors and whoever. But, you know, even back then, like obviously the dark Knight was the best, but it, like you said, it was a superhero movie, but, he has that reputation of being a director that's just in, in total control of, of everything. You know, he doesn't use a second unit. Like, every shot that's filmed on his movies, it's him and his cinematographer who are there, and he's very collaborative with the actors, and obviously, he's usually, whatever the story is, is usually his story. Like, it's his script, whether it's adapted or original. So, I mean, not to say that most directors aren't, in total control but he certainly is like you know that like when he's directing the movie it's it's his baby and he's not just like a hired director like a lot of the marvel movies and stuff it's like oh here's the story and we'll hire a director to make it and they're following already some preset plots and whatever else 
I yeah. almost wonder if that makes it like more difficult when you've written a film and you've got such a vision for it, like he did with this one, that you already view yourself as the director of it. Like you're not pitching it to studios as if like, here, I have a film idea that I've written and now find me a director. Like, I wonder if it's harder to go into a studio like Warner Brothers saying like, I've got this treatment that I've written, however long it is, it's either a story idea or screenplay. And the deal is that I also direct it. Like that's, there's no negotiating of that. Like I've written it as I'm the director. So this doesn't go into somebody else's hands. So I wonder how much more that played into like him actually getting a deal with the studio at that point, or if that's one of the reasons like he took so long to kind of flesh it out fully so that when he did finally pitch it or pitch it to somebody, it wasn't just like, I have an idea, but it was like, I've got this beginning to end already. Like you just got to finance me and yeah, I've already got this. Yeah. Well, and kind of on that note, you know, looking at his early body of work, I mean, obviously Memento was another purely original like story and movie which he he directed but it was obviously a very small scale independent film but then insomnia was a remake and so i i I wonder if that was one where he was hired by a studio they're like all right we have a script we're gonna make a remake of insomnia and we want you to make it and then you know he's approached to direct you know the batman reboot batman begins and i think from that point on and obviously Prestige after Batman Begins was an adapted work, but still, you know, I think he essentially wrote the adaption, wrote the script. I think probably that was around the point where he was, he was, he had enough of a body of work to be like, all right, I have this original story, you know, I'm going to direct it. And he's obviously not the kind of director that's going to like give any ground as far as like creative control over his projects. Yeah. Um, so I think in a lot of times it's it's all about you got to be able to prove yourself first for studios to be willing to give you total creative control over a product when they're going to be investing so much money into it. But yeah, he obviously that really process started back with Memento. Right. Him building that body of work. Yeah. 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 It makes me wonder about the pitch meeting. I mean, just knowing that like the the concept for the film was marketed as taking place within the architecture of the mind. I wonder if after like uh, Memento and Prestige, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, all of that, if you just had to go into the studio then and just kind of say, got this idea for a film taking place within the architecture of the mind. And they were like, how much do you need? Yeah. Here's $200 million. Wow us. And hey, good on Warner Brothers because it worked and yeah. took them all the way to the Oscars. Yeah. Why don't but you yeah. like kind of... Take us through some of that history of, you know, Inception was not not exact, not a new idea for him after the success of The Dark Knight. It was something that's kind of been brewing in his mind for, for quite a long time before that. Yeah, I mean, almost as far back as Memento, this would be, I mean, this is one of his most, one of his most original and ambitious movies, I feel like. And yeah, he had this idea for such a long time, at least, at least a vision for the story of how it was going to play out having this idea of like playing with these people who mess with ideas within somebody's mind or extracting ideas from somebody's mind, playing with dreams and dreaming and lucid dreaming. Like those are all concepts that are pretty hard to visualize and conceptualize and really make become a reality, even on the screen. I'm sure, you know, a lot of people have tried. So it's a pretty ambitious thing to play with. And originally, I don't know if, I don't know if you knew this before we had talked about it, but like Originally, he had envisioned it as being something that needed to take place within the horror genre just mm -hmm. because of dealing with like lucid dreaming 
you know, is pretty like, it can be pretty out there, you know, as far as the visuals that can be created and the things surrounding it. So yeah, I, I remember not really knowing that, but I guess not really being surprised when you talk about it, that it could have taken place. And there are still things like within the ultimate film that we'll see that kind of have horror elements to it. So you can kind of see how some of that stuff was left over, but eventually like he switched to it when playing with the idea of people messing with dreams, extracting ideas out, then you get the concept of like it being like a heist type of film, or at least like taking the body of that, making it like there's got to be a crew then. And so, you know, like a bank heist going into a vault, like you need a team and that kind of like when George Clooney and Brad Pitt are planning out who's going to be on the crew for Ocean's Eleven, like they're talking about, we needed a guy to do this, got to do that, got to do that, you know? Yep. So it naturally makes it seem like or feel like a little bit like a heist. But then I guess like, yeah, he ultimately decided to go against those two ideas as individual ideas and just keep elements of those things because he knew that in order to get the film to have like a, a real anchor or a pull from beginning to end, it had to have real emotional depth to it. So there had to be a central pull, a central character who's kind of followed throughout the film. And not that I don't think, I, don't, I would guess that he didn't think that like you can't do those things within horror or a heist film. But you got to have these emotional, more in-depth elements to the film to kind of give it a more of a drive and a push for the main character to really keep going throughout it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you think of think of the character of Maul, she's basically a ghost. You know, I mean, she's instead of being a ghost in the real world, she's a projection of her former self within Hobbes' mind, you know. So, I mean, that, that does lend itself to a lot of horror type of elements and yeah like you said we do see some and surely there you know there is a, another direction this film could have gone in that that could have like played into that more but i think they definitely struck the good balance of you know using her character more to to serve Hobbs' like emotional journey if you will versus just like using her to to be like a you know, dare tactic or something in the movie i found it interesting like learning about the fact that he was thinking of Inception and that, that concept all the way back to after he had finished Memento because they are very similar just in, the, in their uniqueness and their, you know, kind of non-traditional storytelling. So it, it makes sense that this was kind of his next idea after, after Memento, even though obviously he didn't get to make it for another several years. And, you know, incidentally, both of those movies received Oscar nominations for Best Original Screenplay. Whereas everything he did in between, you know, was, you know, like we said, Insomnia was a remake. Obviously, Batman Begins is a you know, IP. And then the prestige was a book that he adapted. But I just thought it was, you know, obviously interesting. And then we've, we've gotten more of that. Obviously, Tenet, you know, is, is one of his more recent movies. And Interstellar, both, again, very original original concepts. And so that's, that's my... As much as I love The Dark Knight, like I'm always the most intrigued when when it's something original coming from from Nolan. And I wouldn't even necessarily rank all of his movies. You know, like Tenet is not in my top five Nolan movies, but it's still like I'm. It's I always get so excited. Just like what is what did he come up with this time? You know, like what did, what has he thought of this time? That's gonna you know not necessarily one up an Inception or Interstellar, but just being still along that same vein of, of originality and not not a remake or historical drama or obviously like IP like Batman. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, I, I think one of the things that I read was that he, I mean, even if having the idea and maybe he even had so much of it already fleshed out, I don't know, but like even in the idea of stages of it and pitching it, he made the choice to like go with Dark Knight and Batman Begins first in order to kind of gain some, I don't know if it was some of that reputation or gain some of that experience on larger scale films. I mean, that's what he said. It's yeah. not like it. That's what doing Batman Begins and Dark Knight did for him was had and gave him that more of that background and that taste as a director. But it makes sense to where he would be able to look at his own story and the concept of Inception and say like, "This is not a small scale film. This isn't Memento. This isn't even Prestige. Like, I need to do this on a large scale, and I haven't done that yet. So to do Batman Begins first. And then follow that with the Dark Knight to be able to get that large scale, maybe like one, that backing, that budget, and that available production quality to be able to see, all right, how can I either build connections or just experience to to be able to fully realize what I want to do with Inception. So I think that takes a lot of foresight for somebody to have carried that vision through, you know, things like Memento, Prestige, and other films to be able to say, like, I'm going to wait. I'm going to bide my time. I'm going to wait. I have this idea that's just I've been sitting on. And I bet a lot of directors do that where they've got ideas and then they realize, like, I can't do that. So I'm just going to either, like, pocket that or, like, toss that in the trash bin. But he just, like, kept that and just said, like, I, I'll let these other films come my way first and get the reputation, the resume, the notoriety, not the notoriety, but, like, the experience. And then I'll be able to do this fully as I want to. Yeah, it's, it's going to be hard you know, to, to be that patient, to wait that long when you, when you feel like you have a good idea, but I'm sure there've probably been a lot of directors who have like tried to make a movie. Like if they thought they had a good idea or maybe too soon before they had the the experience or the budget to be able to really pull it off. And it probably didn't live up to what they had in their mind when they created the story. And just on that, on that note, I wanted to look up the, the budget for inception was about 160 million. So yeah, you know, for, for, a, for this movie to have been pulled off the way it needed to be, yeah, you you certainly could not have made it on on a memento level budget. It needed to be a big studio movie that had the ability for all the you know, big sets and obviously the all star cast, and then the of course all the big like you know the visual effects with like the in the, when they're in in the dream and the whatever you call it, like the ground like it like folds on top of itself and they're walking up up the wall and everything, all those. And then, you know, like limbo at the end, there's obviously a lot, a lot that just could not have been pulled off the right way without right. big studio budget. Right. You know, with, again, with him being the guy that's not going to give up any ground when it comes to creative control with the studio, like Warner brothers wanted to make this a 3d movie. And this was back when like 3d was like all the rage and he, he rejected it. He didn't want anything to take away from the story. And obviously that was that was the correct choice. Yeah, yeah. You really got to admire him for a lot of the things he does. And it's I think one of the things is that he's so principled on film. Yeah. You know, it almost I'm sure to the rest of, or not the rest of, but a lot of people in the industry to an annoying way. But like he's not, he's not a huge fan of streaming. He's not a huge fan of re- releasing films in that way. He's not a huge fan of not utilizing film when he can you know he's he's he loves using the imax cameras wherever he can you know and just doing things that other people would just be like oh i can't use imax right here okay 
no, he just figures out a way to fit the camera in, you know, yeah. or, oh, the studio wants me to do a streaming release instead. Well, no, it's okay. Like, no, I'm going to push back on that. And so I just don't get the release date I want then, you yeah. know, and he's also big about release dates too. Like he loves July. Yeah. If, you know, for whatever reason, I've never really found out why, but Probably he's also, my birthday is. Oh, that's true. That's true. I forgot how big of a Brendan fan he is. Yep. 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 It's a good date. I mean, it's not like he's an American, so it's not like it's July 4th. It's got to be Brendan Warren's birthday is in July. Right. Little little hint to all the listeners if they're thinking about getting Brendan anything, but it's coming up. Yeah. yeah. But, but as much as, like, he's a he's obviously a director, and especially we've seen within the past year with Oppenheimer and everything that's going on surrounding that, like, he's a director who's got a large following. There's a lot of fanhood around him, even if it's even prior to Oppenheimer. You know, he's got just an individual fan following of people who just constantly are into his work and will see whatever he makes. And so whether you're on that side of things or whether you're on the side of like, I don't really think his movies work completely. I mean, he, he was met with a lot of criticism for Tenet, you know, in, in different ways. And he's been met with a lot of criticism for, oh, what was the other? Even like like the audio in some of his films, you know? Are you there? We lost Brendan for a second. He'll come back. There you are. It always just happened. It just like totally crashed on me. And that was it. You're back. That's what's important. Yeah. That's really, that's pretty good. However long we've been doing this, it's our first time having like a technical difficulties. Oh, hey, we'll take it. Yeah. But anyway, so when, yeah, when you've got fans and then also you've also got your critics and I think a lot of critics tend to come from the side of that. Yeah, like you, like we've said, like some people think like his, his stories just don't work, or the way that he executes it just doesn't work, or there's too much exposition, or you know his audio mixes are horrible. Like he encounters his fair amount of criticism, as even as much praise as he encounters as well. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, like we said, he's 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 praised when the idea works, like Inception, you know, and it's pushed to the forefront and like given Oscar love and all that stuff. And he's also then called into question about like, oh, is Nolan kind of lost his stride when I, like I said, I remember hearing a lot of it when Tenet came around, you know, and a lot of that had to do with like, it just, it just didn't work or that didn't really make sense. I don't get why he did that. Also, I couldn't hear anybody, you know, a lot of that criticism comes out, but I think what people just have to kind of constantly remember is like, and anybody who's at the forefront of something, taking the helm of a story or the coach of a football team or whatever, they're going to come into that criticism at any point. Oh, yeah. You know, when, when something just doesn't seem to collectively work, they're going to think like, well, is this guy, you know, lost his touch? But I think what we've we've talked on this, any Nolan film we've talked about, but really what kind of defines him as a director and sets him far ahead of other directors, I think, is that he's got such an ambition to make it work, you know, Ooh. and there's such originality to a lot of the things that he does. And he puts in that effort and he's got that continual drive just to pull it off. Like some people thought with Tenet, like it was just such a kind of a one note film. Like no one thought of a cool concept and tried to build a film around it. You know, like, no, I mean, like he had a fully fleshed idea from beginning to end and he, you know, he made it work and it might not have had the same kind of following that Inception did, but it worked. And you, you look at Inception and man, like, did this guy really just have such a vision from beginning to end and so almost seamlessly pull it off? And you got to admire him having a vision 
from 2001 or maybe before and just like taking it to 2010. Yep. Yeah, like like you said, like whether or not you think his movies like really work, you got to give him credit for at least trying to be original and unique in this age of you know everything is obviously like superhero movies and comic book and whatever else. Like he's he's trying to do something that nobody else is doing, and the fact that he can pull it off on such a large scale too, like you know he's whether anybody that is going to critique Nolan for his stories can at least agree on the fact that the guy is just a master of like directing these big films like big set pieces and stunts and all these things the way that he pulls so much stuff off you know practically like the rotating hallway in inception and you know the hotel and the the dream like that was like an actual set that they built just all that kind of stuff you know he's obviously got that ambition and he pulls it off and that's part of the reason why i'm such a big fan you had said that something about the the actor who played his son or Cobb's son in this one was related to Nolan. Yeah. It's his son. Uh, oh, the little boy, like the, the constant visions you see of, of Cobb's kids, like where they're playing in the yard, but he sees them, you know, anywhere in that same kind of position or whatever. Yeah. The little boy that's, that's Christopher Nolan's real son. Magnus. Wow. wow. Yeah. So pretty cool. Yeah. You have to, like, put your kid in a movie. Yeah. Well, and for his son to forever have that too. Yeah. Like, heck, I was in Inception. Right. He was in Inception for a lot of it. Yeah, and you actually get to see his face at the end. Yeah. I also remember reading that his uh, his cousin is the flight attendant on the Sydney to LA flight, or LA to Sydney flight. Oh, okay. That's cool. So, I mean, keeping it in the family, obviously, with his wife constantly being producer on his films and working with his brother as a screenwriter. Right. He likes to keep it close. They're like the Harbaugh's of filmmaking. Right. You know, got the, the Harbaugh's, a lot, of, a lot of coaches in that family. Yep. Jim and his son, Jay. Everywhere we can. Michigan, Christopher Nolan, like, we'll just always, always be able to. Yeah. I always thought that, like, Nolan should have directed, or can still, should direct, like, a preseason, like, video for the Wolverines. <laughs> That'd be pretty amazing. Everybody by James Earl Jones. Yes. Score maybe... by Hans Zimmer. Right, yeah. You'd have Hans Zimmer conduct the victors. <laughs> I'd love to hear him, like compose like a a different arrangement, like something like take take the victors, but then like make it make it Hans Zimmer. Right, and then that yeah that that would be pretty awesome with the horns from Inception. Yes, right. That'd be incredible. Yeah, but yeah, I guess we're speaking about actors now. He obviously. He has no trouble, or Nolan himself has no trouble pulling in talent when he wants to. You know, you even think back to the films he's done with Memento. Like, I mean, he had Guy Pierce and Carrie Ann Moss, who, you know, obviously they've got a whole resume of their own now. But Carrie Ann Moss, pretty much, I think she had just come off of in The Matrix, you know. So yeah. there were those films for her. And so, she, you know, she was a big name. Guy Pierce is a well known actor, not only like in British film, but also in American films at that point. So I guess, well, at that point, the only thing I'd ever seen him in was Count of Monte Cristo, but that's, that was still a pretty well-known role in film for him. Was that before or after Memento, though? Oh. I think it might have been after Memento. Yeah, oh, it was. I mean, I don't know about filmed, but release-wise, yes, yeah. it was after Memento. All that to say, 
he has no problem with talent and he has no problem finding talented people to work with because if you look back at Memento, there you see Wally Pfister as his director of cinema, director of photography back then, you know, and, and so, yeah, he, he, from what I read, wanted to work with Leonardo DiCaprio for so long. And I don't know, I tried to look back at this. I don't know which films he had tried to work with him for. I don't know if he wanted him as Batman or something, or if he tried to work with him in the prestige or even as far back as Memento, but he'd wanted to work with, with, it probably wouldn't be Memento considering when it was released and the Titanic would have been shortly after that. So maybe not DiCaprio for Memento, but maybe prestige or maybe one of the Batman films. All that to say, he'd been wanting to work with him for a while, and he finally got to work with him on this film, which to me was a really great pairing, and I'm kind of sad that they haven't done anything together since. Yeah, it'd be great if uh, Scorsese would would let Nolan have DiCaprio back right. for the movie. You know, maybe the next one. Maybe when he sees all the you know the Oscar success of Oppenheimer, he'll be drawn back to work with Nolan. But yeah, right. be- DiCaprio spent a lot of time with Nolan, kind of refining the script and kind of helping to center the movie around Cobb's emotional journey, which, you know, we've already kind of referenced before. I, you know, apparently DiCaprio had a lot of influence in that from, from the early stages of the script. Which is pretty crazy. Like, that's got to, obviously, like we just said, like, no one wanted to work with him for a while. So for him to say, like, all right, come here, guy I've never worked with before, but that I respect a lot, come look at the screenplay. And then for DiCaprio to be able to say, like, hey, got some thoughts or notes for you on this and for Nolan to kind of say I'm, I'm open to that let's let's dig this deeper or did it come from you know them meeting and Nolan kind of being like all right after kind of getting to know him a little bit I I can see that Cobb needs to have further a more of a drive here there needs to be more depth than what I've already given him because I can see and know what you know DiCaprio is capable of or can, can really bring to the character so yeah, that's one of the, those are one of those moments throughout like film history where you would love to be like a fly on the wall and be there for those conversations and revisions and back and forth between the two of them to kind of fully flesh out Cobb's character and, and his arc there. Yeah. But one of the guys then, I don't know what the, you know, you can read about this obviously in casting news, but one of the guys then that he chose next or shortly after was Joseph Gordon-Levitt to play Arthur in this one. And... I was surprised this time around. I don't remember reading about this stuff the first times watching this film or all the times I've watched it, but just like in researching this one a little bit more, finding out that James Franco was in early talks to play Arthur in this one. And I was like, oh, so glad that that did not happen. Right. Yeah. JGL was definitely great for the part. It's it's hard to picture James Franco in that role of Arthur. You know, of course, Joe Gordon-Levitt would go on to be in Dark Knight Rises, as would Marion Cotillard. You know, obviously Nolan, again, likes to work with the same people. Then another one that's in this movie, who was in Batman Begins, Ken Watanabe, plays Saito. He was like the original, who we thought was Ra's al Ghul in the beginning of Batman Begins. You know, it turns out that it was not actually him, but just yet again, another another character that, that reappears. And then, of course, Michael Caine is, is in this one. But it's a much smaller role for him. He's only in a couple scenes. But I was thinking about it this time. It's like, you know, you're right right in the middle of The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, where Alfred is a huge role for, for Michael Caine in, in those movies. Not to mention, in between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, 
he had a huge role in the prestige too. So maybe he, you know, when, when Christopher Nolan approached him about being an inception, he was like, all right, I'll do it. But can you make it a smaller part? Like just give me a little bit of a break here, please. Cause he was obviously, he was doing a lot of work there between the, the dark Knight trilogy and, and the prestige. Yeah. What a like a respectful collaboration between the two guys for, you know, whether he wrote it as a small part or not, for him to be able to say, like, I, I want you there, and Michael Caine to be like, small? That's fine. I'll do it. You know, and like you said, like, he's got such a large role in the Dark Knight films and the Prestige, such emotionally taxing roles as well, that I would imagine, especially for his age, it's good for him to be able to say, like, yeah, I can sit back for a second and and not do something larger at the forefront on this one. But he still gets top billing. Yeah, as he should. Yeah. But you had a you had a note about the obviously we're talking about the casting, but then the characters they eventually play and their names have a significance in the film. Oh yeah. Well the like when I was gonna save it until we got to the scene where like the team has kind of been formed. Okay. But when you got no, let's let's wait. Let's wait. Let's let's okay. hold off on that. All right. I thought you were gonna bring up the fact that Tom Berenger went to the same high school that I did. Wait, um, hold on. Mr. Tom Berenger, like the Tom Berenger went to your high school? He did, yeah. At a different different time. He had already graduated by the time I was I was there. Wow. Yeah. No. Because again, you know, we're not old. He we is. Rich East High School, Park Forest, Illinois. Which I did not actually graduate from that high school because we moved, but yeah, I went there for two and a half years. And then yeah, that's Tom Berenger went there. And that high school actually does not even exist anymore. Wow. So yeah, fun fact. That that makes me so surprised that your public high school that you went to does not exist any longer, and yet the tiny private school that I went to is still kicking somehow. <laughs> and nobody famous came from mine, so. Yeah, until now. Well, yes. Yeah, did you know that guy who has a podcast? Yeah. Getting up there. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. And large, he's got a talent for attracting the talent and keeping working with his talent he knows how to keep people i don't know how he does it but i guess it's not surprising it's like harbaugh attracting great coaches nolan's got such a knack for being able to not attract like great did i say harbaugh nolan nolan's got a knack for attracting great talent and maintaining and keeping them which is pretty incredible when you see actors you know they get such a a wide range of choices in Hollywood. Like I want to work with Scorsese, you know, and all that stuff. And we've seen DiCaprio now. He's got obviously so many choices to make there, but for them to keep coming back, it's, it is funny to look at this one and be able to also say like doing the dark Knight rises after this one. It's like he transplanted a lot of that cast over and just said like, Hey, come over to a different set with me. I want to use you for some stuff like Tom Hardy and Marion Cotillard and obviously Michael Caine. Yeah. It's just always so cool to know that like, when you see a film of his pitched and you see the cast being announced and released, like it's kind of like, duh, obviously Michael Caine's going to be in this or so-and-so is going to be in this and you know, it's going to be great. But yeah, but yeah. So getting more into like, obviously talking about like the, from the cast, but now talking about like the concept of the film throughout the entirety of the film, dreams are the main focus here. But one of the things that we also see being played with here a lot is time. And we've seen Nolan do this a lot, you know, I mean, you've seen it almost since Memento. Memento was hugely about like playing with the concept of time in a very different way and seeing how he executes that. And then you see that in The Prestige about like all this like back and forth between timelines and not really knowing like who is where or who's doing what at what time. 
in the plot and kind of placing scenes in different ways to almost like fool you a little bit because you want to be fooled. And and then seeing it with later films, like he plays with time in Interstellar. He plays with time a little bit in Dunkirk, you know? Yeah. And so it, it, I just love seeing him play with time in different ways. Obviously, like I said, Dreams is at the forefront of this one, at least like in the in the audience's focus. But time is also kind of kept as a, you know, you're, you're in this constant reminder that you're also fighting against time. And so I thought I thought that was really cool about him having this idea for lucid dreaming, but also wanting to see like what else, can, how can I incorporate time into this? Because it's obviously a factor. And it's obviously a thing like when you're dreaming, like when you wake up from a dream, you're like, man, that dream felt like it lasted for so long, but like you've only been asleep for an hour, you know? And so you obviously have to be able to play with that idea when you're going into a film like this. Right. And speaking of time, you know, it really at the very beginning from that opening shot of the WD, WB logo, we get a little hint of the time theme, you know, in, in the score. It kind of transitions into that that hard brass that this movie is kind of known for. It kind of hits you really right right from the start. I love the way it, it kind of starts that way. But then, of course, you know, you don't know this watching it for the first time. But, like, of course, we're starting at the end. You know, that first shot of Leonardo DiCaprio or Cobb, you know, washing up on the beach... You know, we have no idea what's going on at that point if, you know, watching it for the first time. And then, of course, you know, we, we know once you've seen it, you know, okay, now we're, we're pretty much at the end of the movie where he's in limbo and going to get, you know, Saito. But at this point, it's like you just you have no idea what's going on other than like, you know, oh, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. So this must be the main character. Right. Yeah, it is. It is, again, like him, like throwing you off a little bit in the way. You know, and, and messing with your concept of time from the very beginning of the movie because you don't know where or when this is supposed to take place. Your assumption at being at the beginning of the movie, obviously, as being just the first time watcher is like, this is the beginning of the story somehow. And then all of a sudden it goes into that that voiceover from Cobb's character where he's he says that quote about what is the most resilient parasite, you know, and, and kind of gives you that full like introduction to this idea that's going to be throughout the entire film of like, extracting stealing implanting ideas Mm -hmm. and so he lists like you know a bacteria or whatever and as arthur is like trying to interrupt me he's like it's a an idea is the most resilient parasite because like once it's in there it's one of the hardest things to eradicate which is you know ideas are one of the hardest things to get out of a person's mind once it's in there you know and that's such a that's such a fascinating thing to all of a sudden know that this film is playing with Mm -hmm. is is not just like having fun in a dream or trying to like chase somebody in a dream, but the thing that this heist is based around are ideas. And that's, that is so, I think that's one of the things that kind of keeps this film so fascinating to me over time and remains at number two is just like, you, you played with dreams and I love dreams, but you also now have introduced the audience to this concept of like, I'm going to take this, just this conceptual idea of ideas so sorry, redundant there, but <laughs> and really like do it in a tangible way that works and makes sense and that just doesn't seem like too over the top or too aggressive or anything, but really just like ideas, you know? And if you're playing with ideas in your dreams, what would that look like? You know, what would what would that be like to do with if you knew what you were doing within the dream scenario? And yeah. I when did we talk about dreams? I think we talked about this when we were talking about our top tens. 
we were just talking about, you know, Inception and why it's on our list and why it's so fascinating. But dreams are always just so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Like in the film, they talk about like how when you wake up from a dream, just how hard it is to remember it, like right after you've woken up, you know, and it's a practice thing to be able to to wake up and, and recall everything that happened within that dream with such detail, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there are people out there that like practice this stuff and like try to do it. And I think that's so fascinating because I, I'm a pretty like vivid dreamer mm-hmm. to where like I have multiple dreams within a night. And when I wake up, I can kind of recall like at least like w- where I was or like the different things that were happening, at least elements of the dreams. And I, you know, I love like, you know, being able to like tell my kids or my wife, like, man, last night, like I had this dream. My wife will wake up and be like, I don't think I even dreamed once last night. <laughs> and and so, yeah, to come into a place or an, a film where somebody is playing with it so well, you know, and you're thrown into it from the beginning, you know, because, you know, within that inside those dream within the first part, they like they're already talking about it. And, yeah. you know, and and then they start playing with the dream world a little bit and like how the real world elements that are happening within it, how they're affecting the dream world. Uh, I just, man, every time I watch this, I, I'm just reminded again, like why I'm so fascinated by it. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Nolan is so skilled at just bringing you in right off the bat. You know, this, this scene, like you think of like the opening scene of the dark Knight, like that, you know, like the bank heist. And this is, you know, it is like, it's set up as like another heist, but like you said, they're right they're up front with you. And it's like, we're not talking about stealing money or gold or anything like that, anything valuable materially, materially, but like we're talking about information, you know, information that could take down massive corporations or whatever it is. You know, obviously it's kind of like, it's it made pretty clear early on that like Todd is, is being hired by like a big corporation to do something to sabotage Sato's companies so because they're competing and it's obviously very like like white collar type espionage but it's it's still it's it's just really interesting because it right off the bat it does introduce you to this new concept you know information heist instead of you know money which is obviously in its in its own way very valuable like you know obviously like knowledge is power all that but yeah just as far as like not only the information in this opening sequence but you know, we have this big set of this house. We're introduced to Maul, and it's pretty clear. You know, Arthur's like, "What's she doing here?" You know, like it's like she doesn't belong there. And but of course, even at this point, we don't we don't know that she's dead. We don't even know that they're dreaming at first, or that they're in a dream. But like you said, we get like once they show that they are in in a dream. You know, we see them in the apartment uh, wherever it is. You know, kind of unspecified, where there's like the writing in the street. But we don't really understand what's going on still. But like, what's the original architect's name? I don't even know if they even say it. All I know is the actor's name is Lucas Haas. But yeah. So when he's like trying to wake Cobb up, he's like slaps him in the face, and then it cuts back to the dream dream scenario. And when he gets slapped in the face on the upper level, then like it knocks him back. And the one of the things I love the most of that scene is the the shots where they show the watch. And where it kind of like cuts everything out, you just get that kind of that sound that's like either slowing down time or speeding up time. Kind of the introduction of the the idea that time moves differently on different layers of a dream. And then, of course, when he does get dunked in the water and then the whole place gets flooded, kind of giving you, again, an idea of like how, you know, things that happen 
in the levels above affect you know on the levels below and they you know of course then they reveal that they are actually in a it's a dream within a dream because when they're all awake in the the next level where the writing's happening on the street you know we find out that they're actually they're on a train somewhere in japan and this is you know the the first layer of the dream uh which sato figures out because the the carpet was wrong but yeah it's just just so much happens there in that first sequence that like really just gets you on board right i love also just how much this film like you said throws you right into it and it gives you so much to wonder about like one of the wonderings that we've had is like how how did Cobb and even like his other team members become such experts in this area mm-hmm. you know such so familiar with this concept of dream sharing and the science of all of it you know and it's not something that like as an audience member as you're going through that you really need to have answered but you do wonder I mean because you're yeah. you're thrown immediately into this world where it's just a it's a common idea expressed between the, the all of them like yeah dream sharing it's it's very possible and it's this thing so you don't know where there's no establishment of like where in history this takes place like if this is like so futuristic because everything that they've got is almost like just like modern day stuff it's not really that futuristic you know right. you don't you don't really see much other than the concept of dream sharing and so it's either this like lesser known thing that's not talked about so much or it's something that's well known throughout the world and that is only as far as they know available through like military avenues yeah but, but obviously they all have some kind of taste of it or of you know some kind of like back alley like ways of learning about it and adapting with it and stuff so yeah it is it is very interesting i would love i don't i hate fan fiction but it would be so interesting to know like how you know how cop became so familiar to become like a well-known or sought after extractor you know right. yeah it's it's clear that we're we're in a world where the 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 science of dream sharing and the practices of extraction everything are already pretty well established you know it could be that this is i mean more than likely is still just you know it's probably technology that is only available to like the real wealthy so like you know like these big corporations that have a bunch of money are probably the only ones that can afford to to really like have it and and hire people like cop to use it but the interesting thing that i just thought of was you know like the fact that it's revealed a little bit later on to be you know a product of military research that reminds me of batman begins too where you know all of bruce wayne's stuff that he uses to become the batman is all like military stuff you know like the applied sciences division of wayne enterprises is doing all this research and development for the military and that's where he gets all his equipment for being batman and it's it's very similar you know like with this like it's it's technology that was developed obviously it's i'm not saying it's like a cop-out but it's obviously it's like an, an easy explanation to be like oh yeah this was developed by the military and then it obviously you know was got to the point where it's you know available you know in private sector or whatever to, to be used and you wonder even like what's the there's probably like laws about it like what's legal and what's not legal when it comes to dream sharing obviously the government always likes to get involved and regulate things like that so yeah, it's obviously there's just so much that we don't know. And like you said, it's not it's not necessary for the story for us to know, but it would be really interesting just to to be able to find out more about it. Yeah. So we're like thrown in right away, which obviously we we just talked about, but there's so many things that are like thrown at you from within, I don't know, you could say like the first like 10 minutes, 10 15 minutes of the movie, dream sharing, the concept of multiple layers of dreams, 
and then different like lines too, like within that scene in Saito's love nest apartment, whatever, when Arthur yells at the architect to, you know, to pull DiCaprio out of the dream, pull Cobb out of the dream. Give him the kick. What? Dunk him. Yeah. And dunk, dunk him, you know, and obviously like, it's, it's such a quickly said line because you're immediately then thrown into the part where the dream is collapsing and the water starts pouring in and you're like wowed by that. But like mm-hmm. the concept of kicks to get out of a dream, you know, yeah. and something that everybody can relate to. Like when you're shaken yeah. awake from a dream or like you've, you, you're half asleep and you feel like you're falling, you know, and you're immediately woken up. Like the concept of a kick, you're like, oh yeah, I can relate to that. I, I, I felt that. I know that. So that makes sense why that's an element here now too. Yeah. You know, the time makes sense and the the kicks make sense. So he's, you know, it's just, it, it want, I got want to go into Nolan's mind as he's like building this and like, how did he develop certain things and incorporate them into the film? Just thinking of dreaming on its own and just kind of saying like, all right, that needs to be in it, that needs to be in it. But like being shaken awake, like that's definitely a thing that's in it. And then obviously kicks become this big concept as you, as you go further and further into the film. Yeah that and also the you're introduced to the you know the rule if you will that like if you die in a dream you wake up so like he you know when when mal comes into that that room at sato's compound you know she's holding the gun to arthur's head and she knows that if she shoots him in the head it'll just wake him up but and so instead she shoots him in the leg because pain you know you can feel still but then obviously he like slides across the table and shoots arthur in the head to wake him up so it's like another thing you're introduced to is, which also you know you don't i don't remember specifically a dream where I, like i know that i i died and then i woke up but it's similar to like the falling like, you're like you're like falling off a cliff or something you wake up because of that that sensation that feels so real in a dream it does obviously it's kind of kind of scare you awake which on that note this is more of a question that i just thought of and i feel like i have to ask it because i can trust you but you're not going to make fun of me for this, but okay. is it obvious to you as to why Maul is working with Saito in the dream? Uh, let's see. I think because she, a couple theories come to mind. One is because she's a little a bit bitter towards Cobb because her whole thing throughout the movie is like, you said we'd grow old together. You said we'd be together forever. And he's, he's not doing that, which again, of course, all of this is just his own projection of her. But then there's the other part where she's maybe she's trying to actually like sabotage whatever he's doing so that he'll he'll go back like, you know, just live in limbo with her. Right. I, I guess the, my only questions that stem from that is just like we're in Saito's dream. And so what we're seeing are his projections for the most part, aside from Mal, because Cobb pulls her in. But I guess at what point would like Saito as the dreamer interact with Maul to the point that Cobb's projection is actually playing a character with the other dreamers. Mm. I don't know. You know, because she's not a shared dreamer. She's just a projection. I don't know. But but then again, like, they're able to play with Uncle Peter as a projection as well in the later dream stages too. So, the shared dreamers are at least. So, I don't know. It, it was just one question that came up for me this time around. Like, Mm-hmm. At what point in the dream did Saito like interact with Mal enough to say like, let's work against Cobb together? Yeah. But yeah, I, I feel like all you can really do is theorize about it. Sure. But anyway, back to the things that were really introduced to within the 
like pulled into right away at the beginning of the film. So the the kicks and that, and then Cobb says something about trains that he just kind of gives a hint about like when they wake up from the apartment dream, he immediately like tells uh, that they got to like separate, they got to go their separate ways and that he's going to get off at the next stop. Yeah. Because he doesn't like trains. Yeah. Yeah. It's good foreshadowing to the, what happens, which of course it's, it's already happened, but you know, for when we're introduced to what happens with, with him and Maul, when they're in limbo together, that's how they wake themselves back up. Yeah, but you immediately see that, like, Cobb's got a lot that he's dealing with up there. You know, he's just not a uncompromised extractor, but, like, he's he's got a lot of emotions tied to what he's doing. And there's a reason that he's doing it, even though it's, there's a lot of PTSD involved for him. Hey, well, yeah, is it is it that scene when they're waking up on the train where, you know, Arthur's like, you know, what was she doing there? Like, what was that about? And he's like, I got it under control. And Arthur says, well, I'd hate to see you out of control. Ooh. Was that in the train or was it a different time where he's, you know, he's, he's reacting to the fact that Maul is, is there and causing problems. I think it is on the train. I think it is. For some reason, I want to say it's later, but I, I think you're right. Yeah. I'd hate to see you out of control. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be. That, that line struck me like when he says that line, I was like, that feels like it's just, it's such a like Nolan line. Like some of those like little little bits of dialogue sometimes, you know, it just has like a certain certain tone and I don't know how to describe it. It just was like, yeah, this that feels like a Nolan line. It feels like you get those kinds of lines and in his movies a lot. Like I don't know if that makes any sense, but No, it does, yeah. Yeah, it is on the train when he says it. Okay. Yeah, he says something about and then he also apologized to him for having him shot in the leg or like letting her shoot him in the leg or something like that. Sorry about your leg. That's right. Won't happen again. Yeah. But then, yeah, again, more talking about more things that were thrown into, we see Cobb like playing with his totem for the first time too, when he's sitting alone in that apartment or that hotel room, wherever he's at. Maybe it's a hotel. It's a very nice hotel. Yeah. Yeah. We see the top, we see the top fall over, which we don't know what that means yet, but I mean, literally like he spins the top and holds a gun up near his head where I think like, you know, if it keeps spinning, he's going to shoot himself because he's, you know, trying to get out of the dream. But yeah, it's that. What your question is like, why is this guy suicidal? That's immediately like what I thought. Like when he pulls the gun up, you know, and he's just oh. spinning a top. Like, I don't know. I have no idea why this guy's spinning a top, but he's about to like shoot his head. I got so you. what the heck is going on here? Yeah. But then we do get the, the first taste of like the fact that he's got some personal issues. You know, he talks to his kids on the phone and they're, you know, wanting him to come home and he tells him he can't, we don't know exactly why yet, but then obviously like, you know, his, his mother-in-law gets on the phone and is very short and hangs mm-hmm. up. So it's clear that there's something else going on there. Personal life. That's yep. what's going on. When his kids ask about his mom, about their mom. Oh yeah. Like, where's mom? Like, I told you James and the mom's not here anymore. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. There's something, something deeper going on there. Yeah. And then, yeah, he has, I forgot what he says with Arthur, but it like really just kind of, there's a lot more an emotional, arc being built here for for Cobb you know I, I kind of have this thought more so in the next scene when he's talking to Michael Caine but like it reminds me of Interstellar you know it's the kind of the main point of the whole movie regardless of all the other big stuff that's happening around is the guy just wants to get home to his kids mm-hmm. that's all it is that's like the core motivation behind everything the character does he wants to get home to his kids 
and this obviously came before interstellar as far as you know release and everything goes but yeah i just thought that was another another parallel you know from from one nolan movie to another yeah i i do love the what takes place immediately after this in the helicopter though like again like you think that this lucas haas architect character is going to be with the team from for the rest of the film and then he's immediately taken out by Sido's people and then they they have this conversation in the helicopter where you're introduced to the idea of inception yeah not just layered dreaming but inception and talking to you about like how hard it is to plant an idea into somebody's mind in a way that makes it seem like generated by the dreamer or the person that you're trying to plant the idea in you know it's hard to do, you know, Arthur gives the elephant concept. Right. And, and so they, they basically told Saito that they, they can't do it. They're not going to do it. And so he lets him off and they're about to fly out. And I love how Saito pulls him back in of just like, what if I could get you home? What if I, yeah, the whole like getting home to his kids and like what you were saying about how like that's like a similar to Interstellar, how that's a thing like that, that pulls the protagonist into further into the story to kind of keep it driving, keep it going forward. And, you know, Cobb says that that's impossible. Nobody can do that. And yeah, Ken wants an obvious delivery of just like Inception. Cobb, come on. Yeah. And really just like taunting Cobb almost like something that supposedly can't be done. And you think you can. Yeah. Cause he, you know, obviously Saito knows what he needs in the real world, and the only way to get it is, is by these means here. And so, and then yeah, he says that line that they that carries throughout the film, in the beginning, obviously the beginning slash end beginning, right. about like being an old man dying alone, filled with regret. Do you want to take a leap of faith, or become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? Such a, I think it's such a good line. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, the, you know, ultimately, Sato is, is basically like, he's a salesman. You know, he's obviously like a whatever CEO or something of a giant corporation. And he, you know, then reveals what the inception, what the job actually is. But his ability to, to rope Cobb in, you know, you know, he knows the one thing in the world that, that he wants that he can't attain on his own. Like he can provide that, so it's like I've I've, I've got your ticket home, man. You just have to yep. do one job, and you know he, he closes the deal. So we learn that the inception that needs to take place is that he needs to plant the idea of into this heir of this major corporation, plant the idea into his into his mind to dissolve the corporation once his father, who's in failing health, dies, so that. You know, it's a competitor that's kind of out of the way for Sato's company. I know it's Sato or Sato. I think I've pronounced it both ways. I can't remember how they say it in the movie. I want to say it's Sato, but... I think Sato, yeah. Sato, well, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that whole helicopter scene is, is great. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a great interaction. A lot of good dialogue that takes place there, but also, again, another way that throws you right into the idea and doesn't take too much time with exposition that people complain about. I feel like it's just the right amount. Yeah. And yeah, I do love how I, I do, you know, we'll talk about this further, but I do love Cobb's character and Saito's character and their almost joint journey in all this because Saito and Cobb start off as like enemies in a way. Mm-hmm. Like you, you think they're collaborating in the beginning dream. They're working together, but they're actually working against one another. 
then in a helicopter ride, they kind of become partners to the point where Saito views Cobb as like his investment to protect. And then they work together throughout like the rest of the film. And then by the end, it's almost like they're not counterparts, but they're like friends almost. Uh huh. You know, like yeah. they've made it through all of this together and they've got such an understanding now. So there's like, there's not just Cobb's journey in this, but like Saito's got a journey in all of this as well, too. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the next scene, we we see a very familiar face mm-hmm. in a Christopher Nolan movie Sir Michael Caine. Sir Michael Caine. Yeah. Honestly, like when we were watching this the other night, like I I forgot for a second where he shows up. Uh, and so like as soon as like the scene switches and there he is in the classroom, I was like, oh, Michael Caine. So good to see you and hear you. <laughs> it, I mean, it is obviously in any film he's in, like he plays such a familiar character in, in Alfred. But in this one, when he's just in there, like it's so different than his character in Interstellar. He's just like a familiar and comforting voice and face to Cobb as well because he's family. And so, yeah, like I compared it to like, it's like whenever he shows up on screen in a Nolan film, it's like taking that first sip of your favorite drink. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, that was so good. Yeah. And even if in this one, like his appearance is just so small, it's pivotal, but it's small. Yeah. And and it's it works out perfectly and it gives you just a little bit of comfort in this film. Yep. Yeah, there's there's a little bit that we can, you know, kind of glean mostly vaguely in this scene. You know, he's he says to to his Cobb says to his father in law, who I, I don't think is ever named, you know, he says, I'm just doing what I know, I'm just doing what you taught me. And then he's he says that, you know, he taught him to navigate people's minds. So then the question is like, is he like a psychologist or a psychiatrist, like something like that? But then like, you know, he he points her or he points him to Ariadne to be the architect. So are they, is he looking for like an actual architecture student or like, that's not totally clear, but you know, we get that sense that like from Michael Caine, he's kind of pleading with him, like come back to the real world, like stop with the fantasy. And, you know, obviously he's probably aware of, even if he doesn't, he might believe that cop didn't kill Maul and that it more had to do with all the dream stuff of why she's dead. And maybe he doesn't blame blame him for it. Maybe the mother-in-law with the way that she like won't talk to him on the phone, and maybe she does blame him more for it than than the father-in-law does. But you know, we we still don't know why he can't go back home. But that he mentions you know extradition being a bureaucratic nightmare or whatever he says between France and the U.S. So it's like clearly he can't go go back to the U.S. because he's wanted for some sort of crime and you kind of assume it probably has to do with like the dream sharing or extraction or something some corporate thing but you know obviously we learn later the truth of of why he can't go home but so it's it's a short scene but we do kind of pick up on a lot from it yeah yeah it also made me wonder about the relationship between the characters of cops in-laws because obviously like michael Caine's in paris and the mother-in-law is in the U.S. with the kids. Right. So and they're not together, but... So it kind of makes sense how they view or believe him differently. Like, he's got more of a relationship with Michael Caine's character to the point where he would know if he was being honest or not about what happened to Maul. Mm-hmm. And where the mother-in-law might not be on the same page or be able to believe that. Because yeah. she doesn't... You know, she might not know or truly believe in the concept of much about dream sharing. 
and everything. So you kind of, you get a little bit of an understanding about why he's got such difficulty, even like contacting his kids. Yeah. But yeah, it just further gives a, a drive for him to, to keep going. And he says something, I forget why he responds to it. Something that, oh yeah, why he can't build a dream himself. Cause Maul won't let me. Right. You know, that's why he needs an architect. Yeah. So we're then, we're then immediately introduced to Ariadne and it kind of gives somebody exposition wise for, again, it's not too much exposition. It's the perfect amount of exposition. It's great. So all the critics can just stop, but there's always <laughs> them, but gives him somebody to explain to not only to Ariadne, but also to the audience about like this dream sharing concept and kind of how it works, w whether you're involving time or the concept of jumping into it and navigating within it, you know? And so he says it was really, you get, you're in this Paris scene, like in a cafe, which must have been like, obviously like throwing the character of Ariadne off because she's already in Paris. And then to be in such a familiar setting, she probably, that's why he kind of put her there to make her like, know that like, you don't even know that this is a dream that has started because you feel so familiar in this thing. And that's kind of like how dreams are, you know, you have trouble. Like if you're, if your dream takes place within your own house, like you want to wait, wait, did that actually happen? You know? And so he talks about like dreams feeling real while we're in them. Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. And then he talks about, you never really understand or remember how you ended up in a dream because you're always just kind of thrown there right in the middle of what's happening. You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's not like starting the beginning of a movie, but, and so again, more things that the audience can relate to about dreams, about like, oh yeah, it does feel that way. And then, yeah, when you're in a dream, if you're in such a dream state that like you kind of have a wondering if, if this is real or not, like it feels real while you're there. You don't like in a dream, you don't always tell yourself this isn't real. You know, I've heard of people right. like doing that where they can like know that they're in a dream or not, but like for the most part, they feel so real while you're actually in them. So you're, that's why your mind is like participating in the events willingly, you know, cause like it feels real. Right. So yeah, that whole, that whole scene is fascinating, especially when Ariadne has that set, that panic set in when she finally realizes and believes him that she's in a dream that they're dreaming right now. Yeah. And all of a sudden the world around them starts to become so unstable. Like the, you know, the little markets and stuff start blowing up, like the food, like starts shooting everywhere. And she's, you know, kind of really loses control until, you know, essentially they get killed in the dream. So they wake up. Right. I, I and this is one, I rewound this one just to see the line too, because right as they're about to wake up, she's yelling a question at him. Like, why are you covering your face? And then as soon as they wake up in the real world, he said, because what does he say? Something about like a face full of glass hurts in a dream just as much as it does in the real world. Oh yeah. But I like, I, I had, what's that? I, I don't know that I ever noticed that she asks him. Yeah. Well, I had to rewind it and like turn the subtitles on just to see uh -huh. like, what was she yelling at him? Huh because all that stuff is going on around him. And you can see, like, if you rewind it and, like, slow it down, you can see he, like, puts up his hand and, like, blocks his face. Mm -hmm. And so she asks him, like, yeah, why are you trying to protect your face? Because uh, she she wakes up and she's, like, she's in pain, right? Mm -hmm. so, well, that's after, that's after getting stabbed. Oh, I and thought it, after. Because I felt like even without hearing her ask that question, him saying that when they wake up still makes sense. You know, right. like... Like, he's saying that because she's, like, reacting 
the something or maybe not now like i'd have to go back and watch it again i just i've never really thought about it but yeah yeah i don't i don't know ultimately what wakes her up it's it's like an explosion that happens like right next to her right but yeah and then here's arthur right there ready to help her through and kind of explain things to her yeah more exposition this is where we find out that you know it was a military development is where dream sharing came from so they could learn to shoot stab and what else there were like three things that like shoot stab and something each other without actually getting injured or dying so that was you know a question i had early on that i even you know having watched this movie as many times as i have however many times there's some things i still don't remember and that was one i'm like you know did they ever explain like where the technology and stuff comes from and it's you know i say it's explained pretty quickly in that scene but then they're like all right let's go back down for another five minutes and she's like five minutes we were there for at least an hour right and that's where we another thing we learn is of how differently time moves in the real world versus the you know the dream and in different layers of the dream right and i think like despite her walking away after the second taste like it's this is the dream that kind of like hooks her in yeah because she's able to start kind of as the dreamer and the architect start really like manipulating the dream now too you know so she there's that awesome shot that you mentioned earlier about like the Paris streets and the architecture and the house is just kind of like being turned over on top of themselves. Yeah. You know, and to have where you this right side up world and this upside down world over top of each other. And just the way that that was executed and, and portrayed in the film with all with like the sound and the music happening as it's going on. It's such like yeah. a memorable scene. Like it just cements in your brain. And I, I think, I think it's actually Cobb's dream, right? He's the dreamer. I think so because she's the one that, or like it's or maybe it's maybe he's the subject and that's why it's like his subconscious is becoming so like agitated with her that's right so yep. maybe maybe right maybe she's dreaming and he's the subject but yeah because obviously then like yeah the more that she does to manipulate the world like you know she like raises up that bridge and they walk over and she does the thing with the the mirrors and like the endless you know like which is kind of a, a pull out a, a word we use a lot, iconic shot from that that scene, and then breaks the glass and like she kind of that's when she gets attacked by all the the projections and of course when she meets Maul. Of course, the only thing I could think of in that during that scene was Parks and Rec when when Ben and Leslie go to Paris and he like geeks out when they're at that scene with the bridge. He's like, "This is the bridge from Inception." Uh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, Ben is such a great character from that show. Where oh, again, again, like as a film or, or TV show lover, you can relate to so many things that he says. Yeah, definitely. He yeah, he just gets us. I would imagine that Ben is definitely a Nolan fan. Oh, no doubt. Especially yeah, especially geeking out about the bridge. I totally would too. I couldn't care less about the Eiffel Tower. If that right. bridge. If that bridge is there, or yep. the cafe. I would love to go to the cafe. Yeah. I've known What's... people that. What'd you say? Oh, no, go ahead. I was just saying, I've heard of people that have gone to the cafe and that the the same like cafe owners or workers are still there and they've got a lot of like memorabilia and pictures and stuff on the wall of Christopher Nolan being there. Oh, nice. That'd be so cool. I mean, that'd be like a future like weekend trip. You right. Know, I don't know how, not in the near future, but it would definitely be great to go to some actual filming locations of Inception. We could go to Paris and we could go to Bruges in the same trip. <sighs> 
They're not that far. Stop. From each other. Oh, <laughs> that would be perfect. Yeah. But yeah, that you know, we're talking about the trailers. The, one of the main things I do remember from the trailers, and I, maybe I even, I guess maybe this is why I mentioned it before, was, but yeah, like some of these shots of her, of like the, the world being warped and like changed, especially the thing where it kind of folds over itself. Like that's, that's one of the main things I do remember. But then that's when Cobb realizes, oh wait, this is a real place. And that's when like things get real right crazy. Yeah. He gets real, like not agitated, but like almost anxious because he realizes what she's doing and says like to never recreate places from your memory and always imagine new places. And yeah, you can see like DiCaprio expresses that so well that like dread or terror that sets in because he, he didn't really train her for this. Right. So that's he, he hasn't had any, she had time to train her at all, but yeah. And that's when, you know, she discovers Maul and, you know, Maul obviously kills her and she wakes up and she says, I can't remember what she says, but then Arthur's like, ah, oh, I see you've met Maul. Right. And it's a real nice subconscious you got there, Cobb. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, because he like he's he wakes up in a panic and walks off to get his totem, yeah, just to like make sure that he's yeah that he's still in the real world. Yeah, yeah, he does he does it again where he spins the totem and it falls over, mm -hmm. which still I don't think has been fully explained. But yeah, so then Arthur you know explains the idea of the totem and again you know just like the amount of exposition in in this movie. You know, it gets critiqued, but I, I really like it. I To me, because it, it just helps the story make sense. Right. And obviously, without all this exposition, nothing would make sense. And so, I like, as long as it, like, is, it works and it, it clicks, then I I really enjoy it. That's how I feel. Right. And I, and I feel like it fits right to the story. You know, the characters would have to explain these things to each other. So that works. And it works also because, like, it keeps up the pace of the story. Yeah. None of this exposition, like, stops anything or slows down too much. It just, like, it explains it enough for you to keep tracking so that nothing has to, like, stop or get slowed down. So there's there's at no point where you can complain and say, like, well, you're treating the audience like they're idiots. Like, no, you're asking them to go into a world that they've never been into before. So you have, you obviously have to give some exposition. Right. So the amount that's given here, I think, works. But, yeah, so, like, like Ariadne st storms off. Cobb knows that he's kind of got his architect at that point and he has to keep assembling the team. And so they move on to Mombasa and, and then we meet Eames cause he says he needs a forger. Yep. Which, which Arthur kind of like jokes about or comments on because he, he's got a, like a, you can tell he's got like a history with Eames when the way he responds to Cobb saying that he needs him on the team. Yep. And then Eames, for, Eames responds the same way when, when Cobb mentions Arthur to him. Right. I forgot what he says, but obviously Tom Hardy's perfect for the line, the way he... He his, says, uh, like, you're, you're still working with that stick in the mud? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And this was this was my first introduction to Tom Hardy. As far as I can remember, it was mine, too. Honestly, I couldn't even tell you. Like, I don't know his filmography enough to know, like, what he'd done prior to, but, yeah, it was the first time I'd seen him, and I'd, I remember, like, when the film was coming out, people were like, oh, Tom Hardy's in this, and I was like, who? I don't know Tom Hardy from anything, but... Yeah. I, I, think, I think he's British or Australian. He's British, yeah. He's British. Yeah, so obviously he's probably got a little bit of a history there in British film or television, but yeah. some people knew who he was. But again, another perfect casting for Nolan. Fits very well into the role and with the team. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he's got that like kind of like a little bit of like charming wit, but he's also like, 
obviously he's really good at at his job, the, like being the forger, being able to like impersonate people in dreams. But yeah, this this scene, like after obviously they have their little meeting and he identifies that he has a tail and they're like, you know, we'll meet back at the bar. And then like I love the the score for this scene, like the chase scene when cops getting chased by those guys, like it's very classic, like Zimmer remind me a little bit of like the dark Knight. really more the dark Knight rises, like the sort of the Bane theme, which is fitting because this is a Tom Hardy scene as well. But I love, love the score for the chase. And yeah, I think you and I both had the same thought of there's the part where is kind of squeezing between two buildings and it's like getting like narrowing as he goes, but it kind of the way it looks like when he's moving is like, he's kind of turns like forward where it's like just turns totally sideways and you could squeeze through there. Right. Like one, one spot where it looked a little like, uh, that's not the most convincing, but it looked a little forced, so to speak. Yeah. A little bit. Like they couldn't find a thin enough spot. So like, well, just, you know, widen yourself. Yeah. Make it look like you're stuck. Right. (laughs) But yeah, I was always just like, every time I watch this, I'm always just like, just turn sideways and shuffle and you get out of there real fast. But Obviously, his third, first thought is just to like push himself as much as he can to get out as fast as he can. So, yeah. But yeah. So now he's got. So now he's got Eames, and Saito shows up here, and so he knows that like he's not gonna lose Saito on this one. Like he's along for the ride or whatever. At this point, Eames has already told him about Yusuf. Develop compounds for them to be able to enter into multi layers of dreams. Yeah. That he's brewed himself. Which, again, is, like, another thing that I would love to know the history on. Just, like, the, the chemical aspects of, like, what enables the dream sharing to take place. Obviously, yeah. like, as we've said, like, this is developed for military concepts and use. So there's government lab-created chemicals for these things that take place. But now we also know that there's people, like, in the back alley, not back alley, but, like, I want to say black market ways of, like, developing other ways of sharing the dreams, you yeah. know, that are more hush hush in a way as we kind of see in the next scene right yeah this is i was you know you mentioned like the the clever thing with the names of the characters there's there's still the one that we haven't met robert fisher played by killian murphy who we'll meet soon but like you go the names of dom robert eames arthur mall and sido you know the the first names of all the or the first letters of all those names spelled dreams and then even if you want to take it a step further if you include peter the browning Ariadne and Yusuf, then it would be like dreams pay, which is obviously like this is all about like they're they're doing a job to you know make money and having to do with dreams. I thought that was that was cool. I'd never seen that before, but I I did not figure that out on my own. No, but, was that was that uh, an IMDb poll? Yeah, yeah. Nice, thanks IMDb. Yeah, yeah. Never, but never then like of people on those websites figuring stuff like that out. Oh yeah, a lot of time on their hands. Oh, yeah. But yeah, then we're, you know, a little introduced to Red, kind of real quick, because I feel like it's a short scene where we're introduced to Killian Murphy as Robert Fisher, mm-hmm. as kind of the subject here, you know, that they're going to have to pull into this dream world. And we know, obviously, that Christopher Nolan's, he's worked with Killian Murphy two times previously in this. We obviously know from future movies that they love working together. Yep. I mean, heck, he got uh, Killian to his first Oscar nomination, so... Right. And first Oscar win coming up here, so... Yeah. I'm going to predict it now. I'm calling it. Killian's got the Oscar in hand. It sure feels that way. We can go back and listen to this later and see if I was right, but... Right. 
I think he's got it. But yeah. anyway, future Oscar winner Killian Murphy shows up and he's the subject of the dream that they've got to get into now. So we're we're introduced to him obviously because Eames has to the reason they've got him as a forger is he has to impersonate the uncle or at least somebody in Robert Fisher's life who's close enough to him to kind of extract information or be able to convince certain things to be planted into his mind. Right. So like, so from the scene in Mombasa, when we've got the team assembled, we are immediately thrown into like this, like quick, like kind of like heist planning montage of events, so to speak. So in the scene where Eames is explaining like what he's observed, he's been able to like observe all like the movements and mannerisms and everything of Browning so that he can impersonate him convincingly enough in the dream so that, you know, Robert believes that he's his uncle Peter and we get a little more of the sense, I guess really it's the first time that we see Eames and Arthur interact. We already know they don't like each other from what they've said to Cobb about each other, but now they're in a scene together and the, after he explains all that, Arthur's like, well, I gotta say, I'm impressed. And Eames, I am impressed. Your condescension, as always, is much appreciated, Arthur. Thank you. Their back and forth is, you know, it's there's a little more of that in the rest of the movie, too. It's It's fun. And it like it would be fun to know why, like what's happened in previous jobs that like kind of gives them that sort of animosity towards each other. But it is it's still like it's fun. It's not like totally like just mean, you know. Right. Uh, but of course, it's like, again, it's another thing that like you don't have to know to be able to enjoy the dynamic between the two of like why they are that way. But it's so, you know, it'd be interesting to have a little more backstory there. Yeah. Yeah. And it- I mean, to go along with that, it's also when Eames kind of introduces the idea to to the audience that, like, well, and to the team, too, that, like, they're going to have to introduce this idea in such a way to where it seems as if it's originated by the subject, you know? And so he kind of paints how they're going to have to do that by using Browning as kind of, like, the, almost the antagonist in the dreams. And so, yeah, there's a lot of things that they're having to come up with here. And so, yeah, throughout this whole montage, we're introduced to a lot of different things, you know, they're you know, Cobb and Arthur's relationship, which keeps playing, being played up throughout the dream stages and, and also finding out like Cobb's, the depth of Cobb's difficulties here and why he can't go home. We're really told about like Maul's death and yeah, why, why he just can't get back. It's not just that he's dead. It's just that people think that they, that he killed her. And I think this is, this is kind of where we're shown that, but yeah, Ariadne finds out because she dream shares with Cobb and he tells her like, I can't go home because they think that I killed her. And then it kind of pauses there for a little second. And as he's about to walk away, just kind of tells her, hey, thank you. And she says, for what? For not asking whether I did. You know, and that's got to be such a huge thing for him to know that he's got like an ally besides Arthur in all of this. Right. Yeah, we we learn, you know, a lot in that scene. And I, I completely forgot, you know, we mentioned it earlier where, you know, in talking about like, the extradition between France and U.S. Like, you don't know why he can't go home. Clearly, it's some sort of a crime. But even me, having seen the movie, I, I totally forgot about this reveal that, like, it's because of Maul's death that he can't go home. Like, they think he killed her. That, like, every it seems like probably every time I watch, it's like that's new information to me because I don't remember from the last time. Yeah, that's... And, you know, of course, we get another scene later where he explains in more detail what happened and exactly why why everything played out the way it did 
but you know this is it's kind of a you know again it's it's like this kind of montage which feels like every heist movie kind of has to have one but this the the line where they're talking about like having to you know buy out the the whole first class or whatever for the plane because they they determine that the best way for them to get in with robert to be able to dream share with him is to get him on the plane because he takes this flight from sydney to la every two weeks so instead they're like oh i have to buy out the the whole first class we'll have to pay off the flight attendant and sato's just like i bought the airline but you'd have to buy out the entire cabin and the first class flight attendant i bought the airline it seemed neat and that was again another comparison to another nolan movie like when in batman begins when bruce wayne is has those like models he's on a date with and they get in the pool and swim and they're like he's gonna get kicked out and he's like i'm just gonna buy the hotel instead this this uh, reminded me of that quite a bit it's very just very similar yeah kind of like just a super rich guy just like ah i'm just gonna buy the thing that'll solve my problems right so one of the things that kind of brings us out of this like host not hostage but heist planning sequence and montage or event so to speak is Ariadne for I think it's like the second or the third time finds Cobb asleep in the warehouse on his own after she's kind of caught him doing that with Yusuf kind of supervising but for some reason when she walks over there and sees him dreaming by himself or semi dream sharing by himself sharing with himself Yusuf isn't there so she mischievously decides to sit down next to him and kind of figure out like what is he doing and straps herself in and enters his dream as a as a dream sharer there and I think, I honestly don't remember like when they're when she enters into the dream, which scene of his dream that they're in. Yeah, she where are they? On them, like it's in like that, like the living room of their house or whatever it is. Not sort of the living room where there's, but I guess maybe more like kitchen. There's like a kitchen table. Yeah, yeah, and they're know? talking. Yeah, they're like on the kind of the bench over by the window. They're talking, and then that's when we get you know Maul suddenly like looks over at her that is like very much like one of the kind of horror-esque yeah yeah moments of of the movie you know because the music kind of does the thing where it kind of makes you jump a little bit and so that's when you know they end up going to different you know levels they yeah. go to the level of where Cobb we we see we've we see for the first time the scene where Cobb in in real life is getting the offer from that guy like now or never like you gotta you know get on a plane and get out of here he just wants to see his kids faces one last time he's explaining all that to her but she you know she leaves she goes back to the elevator and goes back down to the basement because she originally she tried to hit basement and he stopped her right so, like, you know that this is like a you know a, a, a memory that he doesn't want her to see yeah with, a deeply buried one yeah yeah, and it's the hotel room where we don't see in this scene, but we see later on that is where where she dies. Right. Yeah, there are so many different like you can see like the original taste of the horror aspects that Nolan kind of had in mind here. Of like when someone's built a dream world themselves, almost like Cobb has almost established it as like I, this is the only way that I can dream, is what he says, and it's almost like just layers of memories, different levels or floors of memories. And you can imagine what kind of horror aspects could be there if all you're dreaming about or reliving are the moments that you regret. 
Yeah. Right. These are just moments that he regrets, like not being able to see his kids' faces before he left or not being able to stop Maul or not being able to talk her out of this idea that the real world isn't real, you know? And so reliving all of those things over and over again for him is him just trying to figure out different scenarios in which he could have done it differently or make it happen differently. Like he's almost not fully convinced that he can't do that anymore, you know? And so Ariadne just needed to be able to see that, to see like, what are the stakes for Cobb here? And why does he keep, why is he so obsessed over this? And so, yeah, that whole scene in the, in the hotel room where she sees like the, the disheveled messed up room and sees like kind of like out the window, Cobb kind of walks her through like, well, I don't, he doesn't really walk her through what happened. We see as an audience kind of what happened later on, more of that later on. But there's Maul in that dream again, you know, and, and Ariadne walks into the hotel room and steps on the broken glass. Yeah. And Maul immediately turns and she's about to be confronted by by Maul with that broken wine glass. And Cobb immediately pulls her back into the elevator and kind of saves her right then. And yeah, it is such like a, probably one of the scariest scenes in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, for as scary as the movie doesn't get, that's probably the scariest part. Yeah. And yeah, it was just a really unique way to kind of portray all that's going on within Cobb's head while he's having to do this heist. Yeah. Yeah. There's the other scene where, you know, it's just, it's mall on the beach with their two kids, you know, and then as she sees another, as they, as she's going down, they don't stop there, but there's the one scene where it's just a train going by as the elevator is moving down. Yep. So you get like other little hints of of his other memories and stuff. And this is this is where we hear the that the train quote for the first time. You know, you're waiting for a train. I you don't know where it'll take you. Yeah, but it but it doesn't matter because you know you'll be together. Another one, kind of like the the old an old man full of regret, like both of those quotes get repeated often but in it i like when when movies do that when there's kind of like a quote that keeps coming back and you know especially when you see more and more like how it fits in to the yeah. story you know when more plot details are revealed all of the why yeah 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 they, they do that really well here and then yeah he pulls her back into the elevator and they just kind of come out of the dream and i think it's the first time where she kind of scolds him about like you have to tell somebody what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. She sees the danger of Maul being such a, a big presence in his mind and how it could affect, you know, affect the job. And he's still not willing to accept that reality and tell anybody else about it. But Yeah. Man. So we've been talking a lot. We're going to stop here for this episode. This is a really great place to kind of like take a breath just because we yeah. spent so much time building up the film, obviously, and all the production and everything like that, but also like taking time to talk about just like building this this heist, you know, building up this dream world into what it needed to be in order for like the, man, the real action to kind of start. So yeah, it's a perfect place to kind of take a pause, take a breath, have people kind of take a breath with us because there's a lot coming still in this film. Yeah. So we'll be back next week with part two of inception as we kind of really dive into the the actual heist sequence that you know covers most of the rest of the movie we're really really only about an hour into the movie at this point and we've been talking for like two hours now. so this is where we'll cut it off and we'll pick back up next week with inception part two on there and back again and again but for this week 
we are glad that you're here with us. Here at the end of this podcast.